The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Stocks prepare to wrap up what's been a whirlwind week as the major indices look to extend their winning streak to four in a row. On forefront of investors' minds, the Delta variant as the White House pegs three states as being the main drivers behind this country's case surge. A flurry of tech earnings in focus this morning, including Twitter, as shares take off on the company's fastest revenue growth in seven years. A different story, though, for Intel. Shares under pressure as the company's CEO issues a new warning around the ongoing computer chip shortage and making a return to the stage. The head of the American Ballet Theater discusses the troupe resuming indoor performances in New York City for the first time in two years. It's Friday, July 23rd, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning and happy Friday. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan today, and here is how your money and the global markets are setting their day up. Right now, futures are, we'll call them stable. The Dow is implied higher by roughly 120 points, the S&P by 18, and the Nasdaq higher by 71. Now, the major indices are extending their winning streak to three. They did so yesterday with technology stocks and the Nasdaq leading that charge. All three averages, by the way, are on pace to wrap up the week in the green, despite Monday's sharp sell-off posting their fourth positive week out of the last five. We also want to check what's happening with the bond market right now. Treasury yields once again facing some pressure Thursday after jobless claims data came in higher than expected. However, yields are going higher right now. The benchmark 10-year note yield just a hair below 1.29%. The two-year Treasury note yield just about 20 basis points or 0.2%. Let's now go worldwide. A mixed session in Asia to wrap up the week. Stocks in China and Hong Kong slipping amid renewed regulatory fears for technology companies there. And then taking a look at the early trade in Europe as well. Higher pretty much across the board, green across the screen. The gains are being led at this stage here pretty, pretty, I guess, equally, if you want to call it that way, between the CAC in France, the German DAX, the IBEX in Spain, and everything else out there up roughly one half to three quarters of one percent. Let's get to some of your other top stories now this morning. Bertha Coombs is here with those. Good Friday morning, Bertha. Good Friday morning, Dom. The Biden administration is pegging three states as being responsible for the bulk of new COVID cases this week. In a brief yesterday, the White House's COVID response coordinator says that Florida, Texas and Missouri were responsible for 40 percent of the cases during that period. Meanwhile, in a briefing with reporters, CDC director Dr. Rochelle Walensky warned that the Delta variant is one of the most infectious respiratory diseases ever seen by scientists. Sticking with the pandemic, 
Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar is taking aim at big tech over misinformation when it comes to health crises like COVID. Klobuchar has introduced a bill carving out an exemption in Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which provides liability protections for tech companies over content posted by users. The bill would give the Department of Health and Human Services jurisdiction over what would be considered misinformation and includes an exemption for fake info promoted through an algorithm. Meantime, J.P. Morgan plans to double its roster of advisors for wealthy clients. The company looking to add 500 more positions in the next five to seven years in a bid to expand its wealth management services. That move would more than double the 450 brokers now working for J.P.M.'s boutique firm, but would still lag behind the likes of Morgan Stanley, which has 15,000 wealth advisors. You know, Dom, a lot of people are probably going to be doing transfers of wealth as they get over over the next five to seven years. And I imagine they're trying to find enough people to try to get some of that business. It's certainly a demographic trend that's very, very large in front of people's minds for sure, Bertha. Thank you very much for that. Back to the markets and what's shaping up to be a positive week for the major indices after kicking things off with that steep sell-off on Monday. Let's now bring in Alex Ely, Chief Investment Officer of U.S. Growth Equity at Macquarie Asset Management. Alex, I got to say, things were a little bit frightening in the beginning on Monday. Why did investors and traders come back in to buy that dip so aggressively? Uh, Well, it's because we're in a bull market. Um, (laughs) There's plenty of retail cash on the sidelines, and uh, there's a lot of good things coming when it comes to the economy. So uh, we're pretty optimistic. And uh, while the reopening is clunky, uh, there's still plenty of good things coming. So if there are plenty of good things coming, why is it that the markets appear to have stalled out a little bit over the course of the last couple of months it, it seemed as though it was a steady march higher, and then all of a sudden it hit a record high and then just kind of traded sideways. What, what exactly is the catalyst that, that's needed to either get things going to the up or downside? Well, I, I think the market uh, took a pause for two reasons. Uh, first off, um, the Fed has moved to not provide unlimited support. Uh, those are their words uh, of the of the uh, bond markets as they talk about tapering to some degree. And then on top of that, the reopening's been tough. Um, I've been optimistic thinking things would open up right away, but we have supply chain problems, issues with freight, logistics, uh, issues with with getting labor going. It's just tough to restart a business when you shut it down completely and now you're trying to get it back going again. So um, that's difficult. I think the big change is going to happen in September. That's when we see extra unemployment benefits roll off. Uh, as well as uh, schools will be reopening. Uh, so that'll take care of child care. So I think things will get going. It just takes time. And um, while we're hopeful and, and we've had issues with the, uh, with the Delta variant and so forth, I think we'll be able to get over them and, and come to a strong economy as we come into the end of the year. So, so we had a lot of headlines, Alex, over the last several months here, probably since May, with regard to inflation that was characterized as runaway at some points here. Uh, We've seen that cool off a bit. We've seen 10-year Treasury note yields. Yes, they're ticking slightly higher today, but they're still below 1.3% for 10-year Treasuries. It it, it appears as though there's a market narrative telling you that the growth story is slowing. Small cap stocks are underperforming. How do we remedy that? Well, um, as an equity investor, when we look at the bond markets, the bond markets don't lie. They're telling you that that uh, growth, um, while it's there, is, is not going to 
be dramatic in, in the respect that you won't see tons of inflation. We have seen uh, futures come down for a variety of different uh, commodities. As an example, lumber futures are down over 50 percent. So um, it, I, we, too, think that inflation is transitory. Uh, we think that there's questions in respect of the economy in general. Um, despite these worries about uh, inflation, there's lots of deflationary things that are happening in the economy, whether it be e-commerce or virtual healthcare, mobile financial services. Over the long run, uh, we do not see a, a very big inflation uh, coming down the coming down the pike. So, so Alex, then, I mean, you you have to make decisions on kind of where to allocate money, capital, and whatnot. What exactly is the trade these days? What types of companies and industries do you want to go into and which ones do you kind of shy away from? Well, we're growth investors. Um, so as rates come down, as the economy slows or or isn't quite as robust as people hope, that means that growth is 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 more scarce. And therefore, we think growth investments should do well in this. On top of that, when it comes to smaller companies, while they haven't done as well as of late, they should be more levered to an expansion the same way they're more levered to a contraction. So as we go into the end of the year and into the next year, that should speak well for, for growth companies and for smaller companies as people are willing to take on more risk uh, as they get better visibility on the pandemic and the economy reopening. And, and what I mean, just out of curiosity, what types of companies are piquing your interest right now? What types of stocks, what types of uh, what, what types of industries are you looking at specifically? Well, lots of companies. Uh, w- one great example is in healthcare. We see procedures coming back. Uh, procedures have been growing two to three percent for the last 40 years coming into the pandemic. But last year they were down 10 to 15 percent. We think that they should pop back. Uh, you can't put off getting your knee done or getting your, your hip fixed or, or whatnot forever. Uh, people that avoided hospitals, avoided seeing their doctors. We think that we'll come back. Hospital capacity is back up. Uh, and we see people going back and getting those things done, whether whether it's uh, uh, getting work done uh, dentally or, or having a baby or whatever it may be. Um, lots of things are, are going to happen again. So uh, we think that's part of the reopening. And then and then speaking of the reopening, other things have to take a backseat. One of the things that we saw trending over the course of the last year during the pandemic was the, the, the surge in interest in, in outdoor activities and sports. We saw many sporting goods companies do really well. Manufacturers of sporting equipment do well. Do, do you feel as though some of those trends are sticky? Do you think we actually kind of will be those people that spend more time outside, that, even, with the re, even with the reopening coming into play? Uh, that, that's a great point. It, habits, once they're formed, um, take a while to change. And our habits have changed. Uh, we're moving to a more hybrid workplace. People are, are spending less time commuting. They're spending more time boating or hiking or camping or what have you. Uh, as an example, we own Yeti. Yeti is at the nexus of all that where people are, are using Yeti and feeling like they're an outdoors person by using them. So um, yes, we, we do see that as, as being an area of strength as well. All right. Alex Ely at Macquarie, thank you very much. Have a nice weekend. Great, you too. Thank you. When we come back on the show, technology shares are taking off as Twitter and Snap get a big boost from their latest quarterly results. We will dive into the numbers, plus more of your big money movers, including what has shares of Boston beer falling flat. And later, the new obstacle emerging, keeping that bipartisan infrastructure plan from moving forward. 
We have a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Shares of Twitter and Snap are surging this morning following their latest quarterly results. CNBC's Julia Borston has more on the strong numbers out of these social media stars. That's right, Dom. Snap and Twitter both reporting better than expected results and guidance. Now, starting off with Snap, its shares soared after hours on a report of a 10 cent per share gain versus the penny loss that analysts had anticipated. The company also added 3 million more daily active users than anticipated, a total of 13 million added in the quarter. And it guided to faster than expected revenue growth in the third quarter of as much as 60 percent and user growth of 21 percent. CEO Evan Spiegel warning that it is too soon to know the full impact of Apple's operating system changes that are limiting their potential to target ads. But he said they have seen their investment in Spotlight as well as an augmented reality pay off. Augmented reality can provide a totally new way to interact with computing that's experiential and very different than the way that we interact with computing today. So I don't think it will be a a replacement, um, but I certainly think it's an exciting way to experience the world. And that's why we're investing so heavily, of course, in the near term on, on smartphone uh, augmented reality, but then in the longer term as well uh, with wearable AR, which is something uh, we're really excited about. Now, shifting gears over to Twitter, it guided to higher revenue than projected in the third quarter, a range of between $1.22 and $1.3 billion, also saying they expect their headcount, along with total costs and expenses, to grow at least 30% in the full year with revenue outpacing expenses. Twitter CFO Ned Siegel telling me that their new subscription service, Twitter Blue, will in coming months have more price points, more features, as well as rolling out to more geographies. While they also told me that business profiles, which launched just in April, will be able to start selling things in coming quarters. Coming also weighed in on Twitter's ability to target ads now that Apple has updated its operating system, saying the impact is modest, but it's too soon to say how this all plays out over time. Now, Twitter CFO Ned Siegel will be on Squawk Box to talk about all of those results later this morning. Dom, back over to you. All right. Thank you very much, Julia Borston, for that. Time now for some of your other big money movers this morning. First up, Intel. Those shares are under some pressure. Second quarter results beat forecasts, although revenues fell for the fourth straight period. The company's third quarter sales outlook is just above analyst estimates. Intel is raising its revenue guidance for the full year. But CEO Pat Gelsinger says the chipmaker is still, quote unquote, supply constrained, and it could take the industry two more years to catch up with demand. 
Gelsinger telling CNBC Intel could sell more chips if it could make more chips. Overall, we think that's the case for the industry and for us, and we're working to build more uh, product. You know, first half to second half, we have more expense coming into the business, particularly as we you know, start bringing on more of our 10 nanometer or 7 nanometer costs. So we have some unique one-time you know, things, which are just good news as we move into the next process uh, technology nodes. We expect ASPs to be fairly stable first half to second half, partially because of those supply constraints. And by the way, you can see more of that interview with CEO, Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger later on today on Tech Check at 8, 11 a.m. rather, Eastern Time. Your second stock, number two, Boston Beer. Shares are tumbling after second quarter profits and revenues missed forecasts. The company is also cutting most projections for the year, citing weaker sales of hard seltzer. The CEO says they overestimated growth of that category and the demand for its brand truly he also says some canned drinks were out of stock, including Twisted Teas. So those shares down about 19% pre-market. And finally, Skechers. Shares are rallying today after the footwear maker's second quarter results and sales more than doubled, beating forecasts. The company says as people start to return to the office, demand is increasing for its comfortable shoes. Those shares up 9% in the extended trade. Well, still on deck for the show, the NFL taking new action to tackle potential COVID outbreaks targeting unvaccinated players and their bottom lines. We are back after this. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. It's wrapping up a big week right now for the markets overall. We are going to extend that rally for stocks off the lows we've seen on Monday. If these futures moves hold into the opening bell, right now the Dow is implied higher by roughly 135 points. The S&P would rise by roughly 19 to 20 points, and the Nasdaq implied higher by roughly 77. So a lot of investors and traders stepping in to buy that weakness that we saw earlier this week. Now, if you take a look at some of the gainers, in the pre-market trade so far for the S&P 500 and the Dow. For the Dow side of things, at least you've got Boeing, American Express, Dow, Apple, and Microsoft helping to lead the way higher. And if you take a look at the flip side over there on the S&P 500, Robert Half International, Twitter, Selenese, Omnicom, Facebook, some of those ones that are leading the gains so far right now. So keep an eye on those stocks in the green. Well, still ahead on the show, the new initiative to tackle climate change and the big-name companies getting behind new carbon capture technology. Keep it right here. We will be right back after this break. Stocks looking to make it four in a row and close out what has been a whipsaw week of action. A potential new roadblock facing that bipartisan infrastructure bill as the Senate looks to make another attempt at passing the measure. And retailers looking to get back a back-to-school boost as students prepare to head back for in-person learning this fall. Jan Niffen lays out the names that could be big winners. It's Friday, July 23rd, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan on this Friday morning. And here is how your money and investments are looking as we are halfway through the 5 a.m. Eastern time hour. 
Futures right now indicating we could extend gains for this week. You can see there the Dow implied higher by 135 points. The S&P higher implied by about 20 points at the opening bell and 76 point gains for the Nasdaq. Now, the major indices are extending their winning streak to three yesterday. It could be four today. Technology and Nasdaq stocks are leading the charge there. All three averages, by the way, are on pace to wrap up the week in positive territory, despite Monday's sharp sell off, posting their fourth positive week out of the last five. Let's also now get a check on the price of oil. It was steady earlier this hour. We can see some eh, maybe some slight gains, just about flat for U.S. benchmark WTI crude oil, currently $71.92 a barrel. World benchmark ice Brent crude futures just about flat as well, $73.80. And crude, by the way, is set to end the week largely steady after rebounding from a sharp drop, boosted by expectations that supply will remain tight as demand recovers post-pandemic recovery here. It's also been a tough month for oil and gas stocks, with the Spider S&P oil and gas ETF, ticker XOP, down 14%. That, by the way, marks its worst month since last September. For more now on what's been driving that wild trading week, let's bring in Sean Snyder, head of investment strategy at City U.S. Consumer Wealth Management. Sean, I look at what happened over Monday into Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It is fairly evident that people want to buy these stocks on discount. Is it still a good idea? Yes, I think it's still a good idea. I mean, you did see a 10% correction in small cap stocks. You did see, I think, a 10% correction in financials, some of these areas that had, had been doing really quite well. Um, you know, I think there's still the sentiment out there that you can buy this dip. And, you know, I think what's really happening this week is it's being supported by uh, earnings. And earnings have been coming in quite well, um, you know, especially in the value space, but also in the growth space. And I think that's kind of bolstered markets and it's really amazing how short-lived these sell-offs have been. Um, choppy markets, but, you know, investors keep, keep coming right back in. Sean, over the last 12 months, the two biggest dips that we saw were pretty much at this same time last year going into the fall. It was roughly 9 to 10% that we saw twice happen. Since then, we've seen like maybe five, six, half dozen around there, 4% type pullbacks. Is right. this pretty much the regime now? Is the... Is the macroeconomic backdrop is the earnings story good enough to just say hey you know stocks go on discount they only go to four to five percent well i think what we're seeing with you know some of these short pullbacks here is really related to what's happening to the treasury yield um, financials trade really much in line with what's happening with the yield curve and um, that's one of the reasons they've pulled back i think the same thing for the energy space i know there's things going on with opec um, but it also trades with yields. So lower yields has really kind of caused some consternation. But it looks like maybe they're bottoming out here, um, you know, or, or at least getting closer to it. So I think that is, is getting seeing some renewed interest in maybe some of those spaces. But, you know, growth is doing quite well as well. You know, investors are kind of flocking back to some of those familiar names just in case the Delta variant um, does end up becoming a significant issue um, in the next few months or heading into this fall. So um, I think it's going to be choppy for a while here as we kind of try and figure out what the new backdrop is. And there has been some signs of slowing growth, right? Atlanta Fed GDP has come down from over 10% to around 7.5% uh, in just a very short period of time, about three weeks. And Chinese growth or economic activity slowed as well. So um, there's a lot to digest here. So it sounds like you are in that camp, as pretty much everybody is these days, that the Delta variant is one of the largest variables out there. 
If that's the case, and if the slowdown story is one that you have to kind of hedge against, what exactly then do you do? What is the strategy, so to speak, for how you position for that? And then what exactly do you look for to put on your shopping list if things do pull back, hypothetically, another 4 to 5% again, if not more? Sure. I think what we've done and, and what our CIO has recommended is that you could potentially have about 10% of your portfolios in a medium risk portfolio um, in what we would call dividend growers. And these are you know, dividend aristocrats, um, companies that have shown really strong um, earnings growth, stable earnings growth, um, positive dividend growth over the last 25 years. Um, those are companies that tend to do well um, you know, kind of through the choppy times as well. You, you catch most of the gains on the upside, but you limit some of the losses. So we're looking at dividend growers in particular, um, not just in the U.S., but overseas as well. Um, you think of the U.K., for example, it has a dividend yield on the FTSE 100 about 4.2 percent. So we're kind of that's sort of how we're um, hedging our bets um, related to Delta variant. All right. Sean Snyder, City U.S. Wealth Management. Thank you very much. Have a nice weekend, sir. Thank you. You too. Let's get to some of your other morning's top stories. Bertha Coombs is back with those. Bertha. Dom, the group of senators negotiating that bipartisan infrastructure package say that they're on the brink of finalizing a deal, but a major dispute over how much to spend on public transit is holding up that agreement. Senators and aides say Democrats want 80 percent of the funds allocated for transportation projects for highways and 20 percent for transit, while Republicans want less than 20 percent to go to mass transit. Meantime, the lawmakers negotiating the plan say they hope to release and push ahead with a bill in the coming days, with expectations that it could happen as soon as Monday. Rivian is planning to build a second factory in the U.S. According to reports, the electric vehicle startup is early in the process of scouting out locations. The Amazon-backed company already has one facility in Illinois where it plans to start production on its debut models this year. The move comes as other companies, uh, other car companies rather, accelerate their shift to electric vehicles. And the NFL is out with a warning to teams over the new season and COVID protocols. In a memo obtained by CNBC, the league has informed team executives and head coaches that it does not plan to reschedule games like it did last season due to outbreaks. Instead, teams will be forced to forfeit games and lose money if outbreaks occur due to unvaccinated players. That is a hard line, Dom. I wonder whether that will convince some of the players and what kind of pressure they're going to feel, those that are holding out and not getting vaccinated at this point. Uh, Berth, I also think this conversation is very early on because I'm sure the NFL Players Association will want to weigh in on this as well. Mm -hmm. And then everything else conversation-wise is going to happen with regard to the right or wrongness, so to speak, of being, you know, making that kind of a call there. Bertha, thank you very much for that. Now, it's hard to believe, but it's almost time for students to go back to school as many head back to the classroom for in-person learning for the first time since the pandemic began. Now, that could provide a big boost to retailers as students and their parents stock up on things like new clothing and other supplies as well. For more on that story, let's bring in Jan Niffen, CEO of J. Rogers Niffen Worldwide. Now, Jan, I, I mean, back to school last year was not back to school. Is it going to go back to the way it was sales wise? Is it fair to compare this year to, say, 2019? It will be the best back to school ever 
and that will compare nicely to 2019. It'll be a blowout, of course, versus 2020. But yeah, it's going to look like it used to look. You're going to see a lot of apparel purchased, which you didn't see last year. Last year was all electronics and cables and all the things to be able to do it from home. But you're going to see a normal, strong, big back to school this year. And there's plenty of money in the system to do it. And this $300 check that's going out to all the kids, a lot of that's going to get spent on back to school. So, yes, we're going to see definite rise in the numbers over 2019, and that's going to last all the way through holiday, not just back to school. So so let's kind of take it to, 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 the, to the higher level here, because, you know, it has been over a year since we've had to deal with this kind of thing. What exactly then does the back to school season look like with regard to the types of companies that stand to benefit the most? Is it going to be the major big box retailers like, say, Walmart or Target? Is it going to be more of these niche apparel companies? Is it going to be companies like Staples, office supply type companies? Who, who really does kind of stand out in that kind of a trade with regard to normal times? Well, we're going to see a big time performance by Walmart, Target, and Best Buy, just like we did last year for back to school. But this year, we're also going to see Levi's do well and Contour do well. We're going to see Boot Barn do well, American Eagle, Urban Outfitters, people who sell apparel and stuff to kids to wear. So that's going to be a big change. We didn't see that before. So is that going to take it away from those other guys I named? No, it's not. Because the consumer's so healthy and they're spending so well that even though last year we thought they could never spend as much on electronics going back to school, or this year we, they could never spend as much as they did last year, they can, and they can still spend it on apparel and accessories as well. It'll also be good for tapestry and capri, but they're not really kids stuff, but they are back to college kind of stuff. So we are going to see real strength here across all the apparel businesses that are performing now. So, so you, you, you have the, the child tax credit kind of payments going out. That, that's a form of government wealth transfer to, to other people out there. I wonder, though, this is a year where we're not going to see those $1,200 stimulus checks that seem to really perk spending up. I mean, there was a lot of data that showed that when those stimulus checks went out within the days or weeks after receiving those payments, we saw consumer spending numbers jump. What happens this year if the American consumer does not have those government payments in as big of a way as they did last year? Well, that's a marginal negative, obviously, but savings rates are at all time highs. Capacity to spend on your credit card is as good as it's ever been. And people feel good about their prospects for a job. And unemployment is low no matter how you look at it. So we're going to see them spend and they're going to keep spending because they have the capacity to. They want to. They're really craving to buy something. And that's going to show up in the spending. It is not going to be depressed because we're seeing the unemployment compensation run out or the checks not get there. And the $300 to the kids will help, too. But yes, that's not as big as what we saw in past stimulus, but the economy for the consumer is very, very healthy. All right. A strong consumer for sure. Jan Niffen, thank you very much. Have a nice weekend. Coming up on the show, vacuuming carbon out of the atmosphere. Diana Olick lays out the new strategy to combat climate change and the big name companies getting behind that carbon capture technology. We are back in just a moment. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. The race to reduce carbon emissions is heating up, but that alone will not be enough to slow global warming. But there is a technology that could get us there even faster. 
and major investors are now piling in. Diana Olick has more as part of her series on the rising risks of climate change. Just outside Zurich, Switzerland, more than a dozen massive fans are fast at work, cleaning the air of carbon dioxide. It is the leading edge of what could become the largest industry aimed at saving the planet. What's behind me is a drop in in the bucket. This plant removes about 900 tons of CO2 per year. To put it in perspective, globally we emit 40 billion tons. But the bucket is getting bigger quickly as new companies like Climeworks, as well as governments, seek to monumentally expand what is called direct carbon capture. Here's how Climeworks system works. It's a box with a huge fan on one end and a filter inside that only attracts carbon dioxide. The fan sucks the air through the filter, and once the filter is saturated, the box is closed. It's then heated to 100 degrees Celsius, and pure carbon dioxide is released and collected. Climeworks is one of just a few companies doing carbon capture. It installed the Zurich system in 2017, and by 2020 had raised $100 million from the likes of Microsoft, Audi, Shopify, and Stripe. It's now building a much larger plant in Iceland. By 2050, it has to become a a trillion-dollar market. And I think those are the kinds of investors that they see that there's there's a long-term return in this. He likens it to the fast rise of electric vehicles, solar panels, and wind farms. Now, the state of California is working on plans to use carbon capture to reach its aggressive goal of carbon neutrality. We have to try to proceed. There's no choice. We have to sequester carbon at a high rate. Ken Alex is the director of Project Climate at the Center for Law, Energy and Environment at UC Berkeley. Carbon capture technology has been around for a while, he notes, but was considered too expensive. The price has already come down dramatically. And as it scales up, I think it's not unrealistic to think that this is a a viable opportunity. Alex says the world needs about 50,000 carbon capture plants by 2050, which would cost about $10 trillion. A colossal investment, no question, but with ample potential returns beyond, of course, saving the planet. The captured carbon dioxide can be used to make fuel, plastics, even bubbles. Climeworks sells some of its CO2 to Coca-Cola. Ironically, oil producers like Exxon and Chevron are investing heavily in carbon capture because the carbon can be used to release trapped oil underground. Yeah, in order to stick within the safe levels of global warming, we have to expand this. This is not a question of can we, it's a question of of we have to. It's a new industry and it's just getting its feet wet, but I think the possibilities are quite substantial. Carbon removal also offers a new opportunity for the carbon credit market. Right now, companies can get credits for avoided emissions or lower emissions. But in a net zero world, they have to not just lower, but remove carbon. And now they can buy those credits from removal companies like Climeworks. That's why big names like Microsoft, who want to achieve not only net zero, but remove their historic emissions by 2030, are buying into this big, Dom. Uh, I mean, so, Diana, this is fascinating. So we see this technology in Europe. How widespread is it right now? 
Well, you're seeing another big project in Canada. And as we said, California is working on it. There's another project at Arizona State University where they're using what's called mechanical trees, something like this, to pull the air in and capture carbon. But the more money that goes into this technology, the faster you'll see it grow here and abroad. Dom. All right, Diana Oleg, thank you very much for that story. We appreciate it. Well, the American Ballet Theater, the National Ballet Company of America, has announced it will be returning to the stage in October for performances at Lincoln Center. The series will be the first New York fall season from the company since 2019, and the announcement comes after the company wrapped its a series of outdoor performances across eight cities across America. Joining us now is Kara Madoff Barnett, executive director of American Ballet Theater. Kara, it's a welcome, welcome bit of news for many fans of the arts out there. How excited will you be and the rest of your troupe be for the reopening of in-person performances? Dom, we cannot wait to be back in the Lincoln Center theaters that are our home. We have so enjoyed performing for audiences across the country in parks and in fields. Uh, from Lincoln, Nebraska to Iowa City, Charleston, South Carolina, Middleburg, Virginia, St. Louis, Minneapolis. But to be back home in New York City is truly going to be a thrill. We had a little taste of it when we performed at Rockefeller Center for the grand finale of the ABT Across America Tour this very week. And we know that our New York fans are eager to see ABT's artists take the stage again. So so, so take us through what exactly the, uh, I mean, you are excited are, are there any uh, protocols that you guys are kind of working with? Anything that you're doing different, special this time around to make sure that this fall goes off, you know, as much without a hitch as, as, as possible, I guess? Well, of course, we want to continue our commitment to keeping our artists and our staff and our audiences safe. That was certainly what was top of mind when we planned this outdoor tour, keeping audiences outdoors uh, while we have the summer sunshine. But this fall, of course, we will be following CDC guidelines. We will be requiring vaccination or proof of negative test. And we also know that things rapidly evolve. And if we've learned anything in the past year, it's how to respond quickly to change. We are nimble and we uh, are nimble in more ways than one. Uh, the dancers are certainly nimble on the stage, but all of us behind the scenes are able to adapt so that we can continue to create and to share this art form with the widest possible audience. How closely, Kara, are you following these developments with regard to the COVID Delta variant right now? It's all over the news. The headlines are all over the place. I have to believe that you as the executive director of this group are paying very close attention to what's happening. What exactly then are you thinking as you read these news stories about the spread of the Delta variant? Well, we are always thinking, uh, especially in the past year and a half, what's plan B, what's plan C. Uh, we've been able to keep our artists safe and working in 11 residency bubbles inspired by the NBA. And we've created 22 works over the course of the past year. So we will continue to find ways to train, to rehearse, to create, and ultimately to perform. We are working very closely with our venues at Lincoln Center. We work very closely with our medical advisor, Dr. Bob Galvin, and we are committed to finding ways that we can continue to pursue the mission of this company that has been bringing extraordinary art 
to audiences for 81 years. That will continue. And hopefully that will continue on the stages at the David Koch Theater, October 20th to 31st. That's what we've just announced. And we are truly looking forward to an incredible season that features beloved classics like Giselle, as well as some of the new works that we've created even during this time. And we'll be bringing three of the works that were created in those residency bubbles to New York audiences to have their live on stage premieres. They've had digital premieres. They've had outdoor premieres around sure. the country, but now they'll be bringing them to Lincoln Center. All right. And Kara, b- before we let you go, we-, we ask many CEOs on our air about their expectations going into the fall for their businesses and whatnot. I- I'd like to ask you the same thing. What, I- what exactly are your expectations for traffic for your overall business health as you go into this fall. Is it fair to compare what's going to happen this fall to 2019 or to 2018? What exactly is your baseline? I actually think that there is so much pent-up demand for the performing arts, so much pent-up demand for collective activities and experiences and the joy of celebrating together. I actually think that we can project uh, that we will have the the largest audiences that we've seen in years. I think that the enthusiasm and the energy and the excitement that we saw around the country, we had 6,000 people, 8,000 people in these parks watching ballet under the stars. I think that the audiences are ready. They've missed us and they're eager to come back. All right. Kara Medoff Barnett, American Ballet Theater, thank you very much for joining us here. And please come back and keep us posted on those results of your season. Thank you so much, Dom. All right. On deck for the show, stocks looking to keep this week's rebound rolling on. Veritas Financial's Greg Branch lays out what he says the volatility may, when it's may rear its ugly head again. And if you haven't already done so, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple or Spotify or other podcast apps. Worldwide Exchange audio format. We'll be right back. Stocks will attempt to go four for five this week, which is not bad. I mean, not bad at all. After selling off sharply on Monday, the major averages have notched a three-day winning streak. They're on pace to close out the week in the green, believe it or not. Let's talk more about this with Greg Branch, founder and managing partner at Veritas Financial. Greg, uh, it's impressive. I'm not sure if it's justified. Take us through why investors are buying that particular dip that we saw on Monday. Yeah, I think it's uh, somewhat reactionary at this point uh, because none of the concerns that we um, that we attributed to the drop ha- have actually abated. And so there's two things that we're worried about. Right? We're worried about the, the Delta vir- variant, and there's domestic concern that it will further dwindle the pool of workers, uh, which will cause some inflationary pressure on wages as businesses compete for a dwindling pool of workers. But the primary concern is more global. And we're starting to see this manifest itself with the companies. Many a company were report, was reporting guidance despite spectacular beats that was either in line or warning for margin pressure. And that's because they don't know what this looks like and how it's going to affect their supply chains. The countries that we're sourcing from are much less, uh, much less farther up the vaccine curve than we are. We're around 50 percent. 
Australia and New Zealand's at 11, Taiwan's at 4.9, Thailand's at uh, half a percent. And so the question becomes, are the supply chains going to be impacted more acutely and for longer than we thought? And if that's the case, it makes having the courage to bolt, to guide higher or to put up uh, ambitious numbers probably not prudent. It's fair to say, Greg, that this is a time period where if you are the CEO of a company, it's almost expected that you're going to bring up things like cost pressures, supply chain constraints and everything else. And you're, you're actually an aberration if you don't. But what does that mean then for the investment thesis? If there is that lack of clarity out there, is this all just a bet? Is it just a bet and not investing if you don't know what the future is going to look like? Well, let's put the variant aside for a second. My view two months ago was that we were going to see spectacular second quarter and third quarter results, and I think that that's intact. When I looked at consensus across the sectors, consensus was forecasting uh, earnings power that was 60 and 70 percent of the pre-pandemic levels. And so consensus is still light. Uh, I, think, I think it still underestimates the true earnings powers of the companies. Now, that said, if you're a CEO, like you said, there is really little to no motivation, little to no reward to forecasting your true earnings power, particularly when you just don't have the visibility into what your labor costs are going to be and what your input costs are going to be. And lastly, whether or not you're going to be able to pass that pricing on to the consumer. So if that's the case, what do you buy? Do you just go back to the mega cap stocks that have kind of been doing all of the heavy lifting? Is it is it companies like Amazon or, or, or Walmart or Target or everybody else that's done relatively well during the pandemic? Right. There are lots of good stories that I like. Uh, so you, you're indicating one, uh, some of these tech names, the hesitancy around these names, not only on valuation, but the question was the results we saw last year. Was that a covid related bump or a covid pull pull forward? that wouldn't be replicated or would be hard to beat this year. And the companies are resoundingly answering that with, this isn't short term, this wasn't transitory, we are in a digital advertising cycle, we are in an e-retail cycle, we're in a hardware cycle, and the results are showing that. Now, for some of these companies, we're going to lap tougher compares in the third quarter than we did in the second, but I think that they'll continue to demonstrate exactly what we've seen in the second quarter. For some of the companies, uh, the question becomes, what, if any, uh, cost pressures, because that doesn't apply to tech, what if any cost pressures uh, that cons affect consumer spending? And for that reason, I think that the value segments are attractive as well. We saw this with Domino's, we saw this with Chipotle, where we thought we'd have pizza fatigue, where we thought we'd have burrito fatigue. But at the end of the day, the inflationary pressures are hitting the mass consumer, are hitting the average American worker in ways that are really impactful and probably changing behavior. All right. An interesting look there for sure for some of those value trades. Greg Branch of Veritas Financial, thank you very much. Have a nice weekend, sir. Anytime. Thank you. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Markets are poised for another open higher. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.